Rabbi David Aaron, a visionary educator and author, is the founder of Israelite and the Rosh Hashiva of Oraita in the old city of Jerusalem, Israel. He is the author of multiple best-selling books, including Endless Light, The Secret Life of God, Living a Joyous Life, and The God-Powered Life, published by major publishers such as Random House and Putnam. His teachings have reached millions of people around the world through his appearances on Larry King Live and E-Entertainment. Even though Rabbi Aaron and I both live in Jerusalem, we conducted the conversation through Zoom because of the rabbi's busy schedule. We covered a wide range of topics, including who is God? Why would God care if I married a non-Jew? What is a meaningful life? The role of the Holocaust in Jewish identity? Jewish atheists in atheism? Why Israel should matter to Jews abroad? And much more. I'm Barack Holman, the author of Figure It Out When You Get There, a memoir of stories about living life first and watching how everything falls into place, and a shtickle shalom, a student, his mentor, and their unconventional conversations. And this is Jewish People and Ideas, a podcast of conversations with Jewish thought leaders about contemporary Jewish topics. Who or what is God and is he out to get me? So first of all, I want to start off with God is not a what. If uh, at all, God would be described more as a who. Very often when people want to be politically correct, they say he, she, it. I'm okay with the he, she part, but the it is not appropriate because it generally communicates a non-self-aware reality or entity. And uh, certainly when we talk about God, we're, we're not talking about an it or a what, uh, but more a who. And uh, when we say who, you know, when the atheist says, I don't believe somewhere over there, there's a God, I agree with the atheist. God is not a being somewhere over there in existence. Rather, God is existence. So the atheist is kind of correct when he says, I don't believe there's a God in existence. I don't believe there's a God in existence either. I think I believe God is existence. In fact, the, the word that has been translated as God or Lord is the Hebrew word, the Yud, the He, the Vav, the He, which is associated with the Hebrew word Havaya, which literally means existence. And it's referred to as Shema Havaya, the name of existence. And therefore, um, our understanding is that um, God is existence, uh, and infinitely more, because no matter what we say about God, it will always be relative to our limited capacity to think, so we need to realize that. But God is existence, and infinitely more. We exist within God. We are a part of God. And uh, Judaism teaches us really nothing but God. And not that, that I'm not God, you're not God, but we are, so to speak, facets of the divine. You once said we're a masterpiece. Right. A piece of the master. You know, you know most of us have come away understanding that there's someone, an infinite someone, almighty someone in heaven who snapped his fingers and created someone on earth. But when you go to the deeper teachings of Judaism, there isn't someone. God is the one. There's none but the one. We are someone. We're some of that one. And um, that's the deeper understanding. You see, most people, they have a dualistic understanding. There's God and there's me. And this God is telling me what to do. And I have to give up what I want to do to do what he wants me to do. And he's got all these demands and insists that I praise him all the time and threatens me that he will punish me if I don't. That is not when you get to the deeper teachings of Judaism at all, what Judaism is about, that duality of me and God. Again, not that Judaism is saying we're God, we're not God, but even not God is a part of God. Just like a baby in the womb of its mother, so too metaphorically we would be to God. The baby's not the mother, but on the other hand, is it true to say there's a baby and a mother? The mother is the context of the baby. The baby is completely dependent on the mother. The baby exists within the mother. The baby is an extension of the mother. And yet, true, the baby is not the mother, but the baby exists and is a facet of the mother. So that would be a metaphor for the human divine relationship. And is he out to get me? No, he's out to give you. He's not out to get us. That's as silly as my finger thinking I'd be out to get it. And if my finger had a sliver in it, and I would take a needle and start pulling out the sliver, if my finger were able to talk, and it would say to me, 
are you out to get me? Are you trying to hurt me? Why are you doing this to me? I would say to my finger, first of all, that's really cool. You know how to talk. But <laughs> then I would say, what do you think you are? You're part of me. Who do you think's feeling this pain? See, most people have this idea of a stoic God over there, stoically watching us in pain over here. Hmm. Again, going back to our deep resources, that's just not, God is with us in our pain. So says King David, I'm with you in your pain. And so we understand God is with us in our pain. And so he's not out to get us. You know, when I was a kid, I was told that God is absolutely good. But as I got older, I wondered about the parameters of good. Let's say I have two friends. One is good, was good, always will be good, cannot but be good. Is he good? He's kind of a good robot. But yeah, he's good. And I have another friend who has, uh, has a, what we call a Yitzhara, he has a inner tempter, a, a kind of a anti-self. Uh, and so he's challenged in doing good. But my two friends see that the Torah asks us to demonstrate hospitality. Well, my friend who is good, was good, always will be good, cannot but be good. He's been doing that anyway. He couldn't not be doing hospitality. It's just his nature. But my friend who is challenged by it, but nonetheless chooses to show hospitality and chooses kindness, uh, which kindness would we intuit to be a richer kind of kindness, a kindness which is compulsively, obsessively kind, or kindness that is of choice. I think we all intuit that there's a certain at least advantage or to a kindness of choice. Well, so going back to God is the absolute good. Uh, if that God is absolutely good, is the absolute good missing the possibility of a kindness by choice? And the answer is no, because he's got you and me, because we're that part of the absolute good. As it says in the Torah, amo, a part of God is his people. What part of absolute good are we? We're the part of absolute good that can, can face the challenges, rise to the challenge, and courageously choose to do what's right, even when we don't feel like it. And that's a demonstration of, a, of a, a great kind of goodness. So again, this duality of me versus God, or God versus me, or God out to get me, no, that's not the point. The point is that there's nothing but absolute good, Included within absolute good is the possibility of both a good by nature and a good by choice. We're the manifestation of the good by choice, if we make that choice. You said that God is all of existence. So how are we supposed to have and more? And more. Yeah. How are we supposed to have a personal relationship with the force that is everything? Well, so that's kind of like, can the baby have a, a relationship with its mother? In order for there to be a relationship, there has to be two elements. I'm not you, but I'm connected to you, okay? Mm -hmm. We are not God, even though we're part of God, just as the baby's not the mother, but a part of the mother. We are not God, and yet we are connected to God. And therefore, we can have a relationship with God. The question is, what does it mean that God has a relationship with us? It's basically having a relationship with a part of himself. But then again, you can have a relationship with yourself, you know? We do. We do. So. Yeah, we have a relationship with God, but when people think a relationship means I'm separate, we're not separate. But again, we're not God. Just like Adam and Eve were really one being created in the image of God. And so within that image of God is a not Adam. Eve is not Adam. And yet she's a part of Adam and they're actually one, but they're not one of the same. Mm -hmm. We're one with God. We are not one as the same as God, but you know, we are, we are one with God. So we do have a relationship with God. Why would an almighty God care if I ate a cheeseburger or married a non-Jew? Going back to the absolute good, included within the absolute good is the possibility of a good born of choice. Now, a lot of people would say, so then based on that, isn't it good enough to just be good? You know, like all these laws, like cheeseburgers or anything else like that. Mm -hmm. Well, so this is the claim of Judaism. Judaism claims that good is a science, and that most people think that good is pretty simple. Smile, don't say nasty things, maybe write out a check to your favorite donation, you know, favorite uh, organization, whatever, and then you're good. But let's be, say, be nice to people, right? right? If somebody says, I'm nice, why do I have to 
to worry right. about most of the time people say i i'm a good person i've never hurt anybody well not hurting people doesn't make you a good person it makes you just a not a bad person mm -hmm. but i'm going a, a little bit beyond that let's say i had to go get god forbid brain surgery and i'm talking to the surgeon that's going to be cutting into my head and i say you know excuse me I, I, forgive me for asking but what are your credentials and he says i'm a good person I smile at my patients. I've got really great bedside manners and I'm very kind. So I say, well, that's really great. But how does that make you a good doctor? Uh, I mean, I, I'm hoping to hear that you've had many, many years of study and many, many years of uh, interning. And no, I'm a nice guy. You, 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 wouldn't, you wouldn't let this guy cut into your head. So when we talk about being a good person, we don't think that there's so much detail to that. But if I were a good engineer, a good doctor, a good dentist, a good lawyer, you know, there's a tremendous amount of detail and skill and science that goes behind that. Judaism is saying to bring goodness into the world is a science. And that I could do a whole class on the meaning of kosher, but I don't think it would be enough. I see the laws of Judaism as the details of how we engineer our lives to choose good and be a channel for the presence of God into our perceptual world. So this is a well-known question, but it's relevant to what we're talking about now. Why do good things happen to bad people and bad things happen to good people? So first of all, I love when people ask me that question because it's a sign that they think I'm the Messiah. And uh, <laughs> I appreciate that compliment. And uh, I'm just not allowed to reveal that truth about myself just yet. So uh, I don't have that answer. Moses asked that question of God, and he didn't get that answer. So I, I, I can't give an answer. I can give a direction. The claim of Judaism is that everything that happens to us is for our ultimate good. Uh, do I understand that? No, I don't. But then again, imagine a seed that doesn't know it's a seed, and a farmer that the seed doesn't know is a farmer buries the seed alive. From the seed's point of view, this guy is some psychotic murderer. I mean, just kill me. Don't bury me alive. And there that seed is under the ground, decomposing and definitely dying. If we were to whisper into that seed's little seedy ear, you know, uh, guess what? You're not dying and he's not trying to kill you. You're blossoming and you're about to become something even greater than you could ever have imagined. Is it possible for that seed to even fathom what we're saying? No. And so too, when we go through trying times, we just can't fathom what this is about. But Torah is insisting that it's about our growth. It's about what is in our best interest. And that someday we will see and look back at it all and only be grateful. I remember one rabbi said, you know, these great questions will be answered when we die. How much in a hurry are you? <laughs> so I said, okay, I'll stay here with my questions. We are in the world of questions. Uh, you know, part of what it means to be human is to make choices without knowing all the answers, because that's, mm -hmm. that is true courage. You know, imagine you have a fellow in the army and his platoon is under attack and he does something absolutely outrageous in them and runs into the middle of the field and and he saves his entire platoon in this incredible, courageous act. And the army decides to award this guy what we call an ot kavod, you know, an honorary award. Uh, medal you know, of so honor. A medal of honor. But just before the dinner and the ceremony, the guy says, look at him, just want to tell you something. I think you should know that I'm psychic. I'm 100% psychic. I've never been wrong. So I knew that no bullet would hit me. As well as I know I don't look it, but I'm, I'm made of steel. And so if a bullet would have hit me, it would just bounce off. So are you sure you want to give me a Medal of Honor? Because I really didn't take any risks. So you know what? No guts, no glory. Mm -hmm. So so too, we're the part of God called the kavod. We are the glorious part of God because we don't know, because there's great questions, because there's risks. That's why we have the opportunity for very bold, courageous choices. And that's what we're here to do in this world, to make manifest that part of God 
which is through making choices, bold choices and taking risks. So that leads into the next question. So people want to live a meaningful life, but do, do. people know what a meaningful life is? Like what is living a meaningful life? Wow. Great, great question. A, a meaningful life is the same as a meaningful word. What makes a word meaningful? If I were a word, I wouldn't really want to be hanging out in a dictionary. That's a place where I have potential meaning, but I want to be in a sentence. I, I don't want to feel that the guy in front of me and the guy after me just happens to share the same two letters. I want to be part of a story. I want to be contributing to a story. So a meaningful word is a word that's in a sentence, which is in a paragraph, which is in a chapter, which is in a book, which is in a series. And so too, a meaningful life is that I am part of a greater story. And that's called his story or history, because history is his story. And your story and my story is an episode in the meta story of his story. And that's when our life becomes meaningful. But when we don't feel we're part of anything, we're not coming from nowhere, we're not going anywhere, we're not contributing, we're not part of that which is greater than ourselves. That's the interesting thing about us. You know, when I was a teenager, I loved going to rock and roll concerts. And uh, I remember my first rock and roll concert, thousands of people at this concert. And suddenly in the middle of the concert, everyone was holding a match. Now, today people hold their cell phones, but this is a desecration of rock and roll. What can I do? But uh, in my days, people actually did that physical, ah, you know, little You also had a time limit with the match. That's right. There's a time limit. And so I, you know, I, I didn't have a match and I, I desperately needed a match. I have to be part of this. So I'm, excuse me, you got a match, you got a match. And I got, finally had a match and there I was holding my match. And I felt great until it got to my fingers. But I was holding that match. And uh, only later on did I realize the meaning of that ritual. It was a ritual. And I understood it when I was, when I was invited to a Shabbat experience of 300 teenagers. And just before Shabbat, everyone was dancing and singing, and then they all lit their matches to light the Shabbat candles. And I remember thinking, this is so familiar, but I've never done this before. And then I realized I had done this before, that this was, um, this was what I was looking for. I was looking to feel part of a reality greater than myself. I was really looking for Shabbat, but at a Black Sabbath concert. You know, so we are all yearning. We all long to belong to that which is beyond. And that is what gives us meaning. When I feel part of a greater story, you know, when I'm just, it's all about me, me, me. I call that misery. Not misery, but misery. And uh, we want to get beyond ourself and feel part of some greater self that we share with the universe. And that greater self is what we would call God. You just made me realize that that's probably the reason that I love living here in Israel. Yes. Because you are part of a, you are an individual part of a bigger picture and we're all in it together. And it gives you the sense of meaning by living here. It's amazing. I mean, not that it's not possible to feel anywhere else, but I, I did grow up in Toronto and, you know, I get on the bus and I go downtown. I, I didn't feel that this is part of some great story, but when I walk down the street of Jerusalem, I realize, my gosh, we've come back after thousands of years against all odds. Those prophets were saying things that were beyond ridiculous. And yet, looking back at it, how could they have known that we would actually come back and be here and, and rebuild this country? It's like we're part of an amazing story. And that's what gives you a deep sense of meaning. So if the Jews are the chosen people, does that make everyone else the unchosen people? Well, the question is, what does chosenness mean? You know, when I was a little kid, and again, I, I didn't grow up with uh, too much Torah knowledge. I, I grew up in a very Jewish home because I always felt guilty. So I knew I must be Jewish. <laughs> yeah, I thought on Hanukkah when we get guilt, it was guilt. <laughs> I really did till I got to college. I thought it was Hanukkah guilt. Right. It, 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 my, my journey is what I call from the oy of being Jewish to the joy of being Jewish. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, so I went to a, a, a school and I was the only Jewish kid uh, in the school and I was beat up for killing Jesus. And I told them, I don't even know the kid. I didn't <laughs> kill him. But um, but I was the only Jew in the school and I was the smartest kid in my class. And I didn't take it personally. I'm one of the chosen people. They told me that. 
So, okay, you know, it's just the way it is. And then, in like about two months into the school year, this little Japanese girl moved into the neighborhood. And she walks into my grade two class and she knocks me out of the rink. The girl is absolutely brilliant. And I'm thinking, is she Jewish? Could she be Jewish? How come she's so smart? Uh, a lot of people think that chosenness means that we're the smartest people or we're the... Chosenness is not as much a privilege as an obligation. Mm-hmm. Chosenness means that I have a responsibility to the world. That's the difference between Noah and Abraham. And these two stories are juxtaposed to each other. Noah basically is being chosen and the rest of the world is being rejected. God is saying, I am going to choose you and the rest of the world will perish. But when God chooses Abraham, God says, and through you, the world will be blessed. The chosenness of the Jewish people is to bring blessing to the world. It's not to tell them they're not chosen, but to be that vehicle. It's a responsibility. It's like if I were a rabbi of a synagogue, so my job is to tell my congregants about God and bring God consciousness into their, into the, their careers. But if, if I have a dental problem, I'm going to go to the dentist in my congregation. And if I have, if I have fever, I'm going to go to the doctor in my congregation. And, and if I have a plumbing issue, I'm going to go, well, I don't think there'll be any Jewish plumbers in my congregation. I'm just joking. <laughs> so who's chosen here? The chosenness means that I have a job to do. And even if not every single Jew is going to be a rabbi or a rebbitzin, but when in every field we're in, we need to take the responsibility of being a role model of being a God-conscious doctor, a dentist-conscious doctor, a, mm. and be a role model to people. So uh, chosenness is a responsibility. It's an accountability. I don't think everybody would want that. Some people, their job is to be the private assistant of the boss. And some people don't want that close proximity to the boss because if you make a mistake, that's very far reaching in terms of the entire company, well, but whereby somebody would prefer to be in some department far away from the boss. So if somebody wants to convert, they, if they want this job, they're welcome to join us. I want to ask about Holocaust and Jewish identity. So I don't remember, your mother was a Holocaust survivor? Yeah. Your father was also? No. Probably, I'm sure you know the Pew study. There was a recent study about Jewish identity in America. And something like 76% of American Jews, which was the largest number in the survey, identify remembering the Holocaust as being part of a Jewish identity. Yeah. I think next was Jewish humor. And, oh. And it was far away. It was like, you know, 50% or 40%, uh-huh. whatever it is. The Holocaust has clearly become the defining standard for what makes you a Jew. You remember the Holocaust. So yeah. what role should the Holocaust play in a Jewish identity? If someone were to ask me, so who are you, David Aaron? I would say a son of a survivor, hmm. which is very interesting because I had this conversation with my sister who is three years older than me. And I said to her, I, I had mentioned this to her and she was shocked. She said, I would never say I'm a daughter of a survivor. So I thought, isn't that interesting? We're both the children of the same mother. And yet my sister doesn't see the fact that she's a daughter of a survivor the core of her identity. This is who I am. This is why I'm sitting here talking about Judaism. So much of what I'm about is very Holocaust conscious. Because as a, uh, you know, uh, in in my youth, I woke up to my mother screaming, having a nightmare of the concentration camp, and I was bombarded and tormented by questions. Is there a God? And if there's a God, is he good? And if he's good, why is the world so bad? And, And if I am I am the chosen people. I wish he chose somebody else. Mm. So I didn't like being Jewish. I wasn't proud of being Jewish. It was really <clears throat> very much about the Holocaust. And uh, I remember Rabbi Sachs in his book, uh, A Letter in the Scroll, I believe it's in that book at the beginning, he talks about how he tried to excite people on campus and invited them to send in something about what does it mean to be Jewish? And there would be some kind of prize. And he couldn't incentivize enough people. He only got three responses, I think. But one response is, for me, Judaism is a disease because not a few people died from it. So to me, Judaism was a burden. Being Jewish was not a blessing or an opportunity. Uh, and I struggled with that for many, many, many years. So um, 
where does the Holocaust play in its identity? Maybe what we need to understand is that we, in some way, are extremely unique. That, you know, I believe it was maybe Rav Kook that said, if you want to know who you are, ask your enemies. Your enemies seem to know who you are more than you do. And Hitler Machimo said in Mein Kampf, we are barbarians and we are proud of it. It is only the Jews that claim that man can transcend himself. Jews are the conscience of the soul, the shackles of the soul. They've inflicted two wounds on mankind, conscious on his soul, circumcision on his body. The Holocaust was ultimately a rebellion against God and those who have come to this world to represent God and promote God. Mm -hmm. So when you think about it, there's a certain compliment in the torture. The compliment is you people are so dangerous to us because you're teaching a message that we don't want to hear. And we need to get rid of you so that we don't hear you go around testifying to the existence of God. So I think we should look at the Holocaust, not only in terms of the horror of it, but also in terms of taking ourselves that seriously, that so many people found us to be such a threat that they felt the only way to, to deal with that threat is to completely annihilate us. What is it about us that was so threatening? And Hitler said that we are bringing conscience to the world, and that's what's threatening. So um, we're basically taking the bullet for God in a certain way, because he was out to kill God. He was out to kill God. And anybody that works for God is just as bad as God. So I do think the problem, though, is that a lot of people's identity is the Holocaust. And uh, I think that would be a good reason for a lot of people to run. Of course. Like, if that's the payoff for being the chosen people, I, I think I'll uh, choose some other religion. So, but if that's all I know is the Holocaust, so then um, it's not much of a prize for who we are and what we contribute. But if we get behind the Holocaust, the motivation behind the Holocaust, I think there's a very strong message of how significant we are and the power that they're afraid that we have, which is not to control the banks and all that, but to, you know, it's like, uh, I think it was Friedrich Nietzsche who said there's two types of people in the world. There's strong people and there's weak people. Strong people do what they want, when they want, where they want. But the weak people, they're smart. And to protect themselves from the strong people, they invented morality to make the strong people feel guilty that they're so strong. And who are the weak people that invented morality and have the patent rights to guilt? The Jewish people, says Nietzsche. And Nietzsche actually wasn't an anti-Semite. He wasn't saying it like to spew hatred towards the Jews. It was Hitler, big fan of Nietzsche, who, who, who twisted those words to his own, you know, his own philosophies and hatred. But I think it's important to understand that the Jewish people, in a lot of ways, are what people might call a party pooper. You know, we want a party, and you're telling us to have conscience and to self-transcend and to get beyond your animalistic side and demonstrate you know, kindness and compassion and peace and love. And, you know, idolatry is the deification of nature. People think idolatry is, oh, you've got your religion, I've got mine. You like to bow down to trees, I bow down to whatever. No, idolatry was the deification of nature, which has a far-reaching moral comment, which is whatever comes naturally is good. And if you go against the nature of man, you are destroying man. Judaism is saying, don't be natural be supernatural. Get beyond your animalistic side and do what's right even when you don't feel like doing it. And that's a very disturbing message to a lot of the world. A lot of the world likes that message because we've succeeded in convincing the world about that. But there's still a lot of people in the world that would rather be part of a wild jungle than a royal kingdom. And we're here, the Taken Olam Chudai, to establish this world into a a kingdom where we're all working together in service of bringing King, who is called Good Almighty, into the world. So uh, unless we deeply understand what's behind the Holocaust, then just knowing about the history of the Holocaust and how horribly we were treated and tortured and murdered, 
is a good incentive to go find something else to do and identify with, I think. Hmm. So I think it's great. And don't get me wrong. I think it's absolutely important that we have Holocaust museums. But I think we need to find, we have to establish museums that not only remember the death of Jews, but museums that are not even museums, but living centers that celebrate the extraordinary life and life force of the Jews. And I, I think we need more of that uh, these days. And so again, I'm not in any way diminishing the incredible importance and the great work that people do in the, the, the amazing museums of, of remembering, because those who don't remember the past are doomed to commit the same crime to, in the future. So we have to remember the past, but we also have to get to the core of that past and get past it. Get past the past. That's right. Get on with the future. I, I'm not asking you a question. I just want to respond to what you said. I grew up in North Miami Beach. So I grew up with the older generation were all Holocaust survivors. And I was the boy chick that they wanted to put all of that mm. on. Don't forget, remember. And it was like so much, exactly what you said. I just wanted to run away from it. It was when I came to Israel yeah. that I found the answer. I interviewed Ruth Weiss, the last podcast I did. And I asked yes. her about the Holocaust Museum in America versus Yad Vashem. She said, Yad Vashem, you go out and you see the Jewish answer to the Holocaust. She said, that's the difference. You leave the mm. museum in America, yes. you go out to America. Here you see the living, breathing answer to the Holocaust. Yeah. And for me, that was the fixing. That's what I needed. That's right. For me, it was moving from the oi to the joy. It was a lot of oi, a lot of pain, a lot of sadness. And... Um, you know, that's why I started an organization called Israelite, because Rabbi Cook has a saying that the righteous, rather than focus on the darkness, add light. And that really so deeply resonated with me because I felt, yes, so much of my Jewish identity is about remembering the darkness. And I'm not saying we should forget the darkness, but we have to add light. And so much of my identity was what they're not, not what we are, or what we were, and not what we can become. There's two quotes that I learned from you. I don't know if they're your quotes or you got them from somebody else related to marriage. Mm -hmm. And they've been very helpful to me. I've been married for 25 years now. So the first one is the marriage made in heaven is the one that you worked on here on earth. I think that's actually mine. But you know, what? it's all God's. <laughs> Let me tell you, I'm really telling you in the most honest way, that has saved my marriage again oh. and again and again. And I tell people all the time, you, you're not going to find the perfect person. You need right. to work on it. And right. then you have the perfect marriage. Yes. And the second one is that love is a verb. Have you I heard that? I don't remember ever saying that. I did learn it from yeah, you. I, I believe love is a verb. Yes. It's an action. It's, uh, yes. it's, it's not, not just, just going to come to you. You have to work on it. Right. Well, I call it a labor of love. Love is a labor. And I believe that most people think that love is all about the heart. But I believe that true love and the success of love is about being smart. I think a lot of people's relationships break down because they're just not being smart with their spouse. You know, so I think there needs to be some real intelligence behind how you love and how you build your relationship. So the question was, what advice do you have for a successful marriage? Ah, uh, well, uh, guess what? My wife and I, God willing, will be celebrating our 40th anniversary in about a month from now. Is that the shaman? Good health. So I mean, I will share one of the advices I got. When my wife and I got married, we took a walk the next morning and a complete stranger walked up to us and said, Mazel Tov, I'm sorry I couldn't make it to your wedding last night. We didn't know who he was. So we said, oh, we don't want to hurt his feeling. We said, sorry, you couldn't make it. So he said, but I would like to give you a gift. Oh, that's unnecessary, but okay. We won't take any gifts. <laughs> <laughs> so he said, a piece of advice. I'm thinking, hmm, talk is cheap, but okay. And this was his advice to two lovebirds floating down the street after their wedding. He said, don't ever go to sleep on an argument. Now that sounds so cynical. And we thought to ourselves, argument? When would we ever have an argument? What could we ever argue over? Uh, I think that's night. That's what we argued about was uh, who didn't invite this guy. <laughs> but the truth is that that for us, now I'm not saying that works for everybody. I know some people need time, but we made it a rule that we would not go to sleep until we had peace. 
And that would mean that sometimes we'd be up till very late at night, really working this out and sharing and listening and, and breathing and, you know, and, and, uh, and uh, that was his advice. And uh, look, we're, 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 all, we're about to celebrate our 40th anniversary and I haven't slept in 40 years. <laughs> but really, we would, um, we would work it out. And I think sometimes, and I know I've shared this with some people, I say, yeah, but sometimes I'm just so steamingly angry. I, I just need some time away. Uh, okay. But you know what? You got to deal with it soon. Because what happens is people say, you know what? Let's not, let's not start that up again. Let's let go of that. Let's not open that up again. But then it festers and it just stays there. And I remember I was teaching a man who was in his 80s. And uh, one day in the middle of our learning together, he turns to me and says, you know what, Rabbi, you know what bothers me about my wife that I, I don't want to know? I said, no. And he right, right away starts to tell me, she doesn't know how to forgive. My wife doesn't know how to forgive. Starts telling me a story that is just an absolute demonstration of how she cannot forgive. I say, when did that happen? 40 years ago. Wow. Okay. Next day, I'm, I'm sitting, waiting for him to come and his wife sits down, starts talking to me, and she says to me, you know, Rabbi, you know what bothers me about my husband? I, no, I don't, I, no, no, please. She says, he doesn't know how to ask forgiveness. He doesn't know how to apologize. Hmm. And she starts telling me the same story for 40 years. Maybe that's a great marriage. It's been 40 years since they've had a, an argument. But well, the that's idea, interesting, you yeah, know. It, but the idea is differently. don't let it fester. Mm-hmm. Take care of it as soon as you can. Because, you know, hard feelings don't just go away. And so you want to uh, share, apologize, understand, listen. And one advice that my wife gave, which she learned in a course for, you know, marriage counseling, is never criticize, just share your needs. And I think that's a very important point because nobody likes to be criticized. Nobody likes to be criticized. And when you even say constructive criticism, I don't care. Nobody likes to be, but you can say, look, these are my needs. I know you're quiet. And I understand that. And I'm not criticizing it. I just need more conversation. Mm-hmm. It's about me. It's not about you. I think that's a very uh, important lesson also. This is really a personal question. And it's a question you're going to, I'm guessing you're going to understand. So I have a friend who became an Orthodox rabbi. And he was very popular and had a following of students. And one day he decided that he's an atheist. He stopped keeping kosher and Shabbos. And I've just watched him from a distance. We're still friends on Facebook. He's now moved back to the States. What would you say to somebody in that situation? Other than he's going to hell? <laughs> I'm just joking. <laughs> First of all, it's not for me to judge what challenges he's gone through. But my guess is that there were fundamentals, basics that he was missing. And he had built a castle of Torah life on air. And I'm very much into asking beginner questions over and over again, because the beginner questions is where it all starts and, and what it's built upon. My guess is that there are some premises that were never really put there. You know, I've, I've thought about this, you know, people call me the God expert and this and that. And I've thought about if I were in the gas chamber, maybe I was, you know, because I'm named after my, my Zadie and murdered by the Nazis. Maybe I was in the gas chamber. But I've thought about it. I've visualized myself in the gas chamber as I'm gasping for my last breath of life. Would I have lost my faith? And I've really contemplated that. And I realized that I would have. And then when I visualized myself losing my faith, I caught myself and realized, but then Hitler isn't wrong. Hitler isn't evil. What he's doing is just not my taste. And that I knew is impossible. And I realized. I don't have a choice in believing in God. It's not a choice. My entire life is based on God is hardwired into my life because meaning is my oxygen. If there is no God, then this universe is meaningless. Purpose is my oxygen, and I can't have a purposeful life in a purposeless world. And the desire and the confidence that life is significant. We are here and we really matter. All those are the sure signs of a believer. I think most atheists are really not atheists. I know they're saying they're atheists, but they have what I call the signs of a believer. If you believe that your life matters, if it matters to you that what you say is valued by other people, 
why would the product of a big bang have such expectations? And it's not just expectations. You know, I spoke to a fellow who said he didn't believe in God. And I said, so then you believe that you're an accident? He said, no, I didn't say that. I said, well, kind of did. <laughs> because if, if you're not a creation, then you're the product of a big bang, which makes you no different than a piece of dirt. We're all just an accident. Mm-hmm. He said, no, I'm not. <laughs> I said, look, I'm not the one saying, you know, I'm just, I want you to just face, you know, what you're saying. I think most people are not atheists. And I believe that this rabbi himself who says he doesn't believe in God, the fact that it's important to him to tell people that he doesn't believe in God is a sure sign he does believe in God. Because if you don't believe in God, your non-belief in God is just as unimportant you know, as anything else. I believe he does believe, but he's got the wrong understanding of God, which he should not believe in. I think most atheists don't believe in the God that I don't believe in either. And I was just teaching my students a piece from Rav Cook where he talks about a person that truly believes in God will love all people, will, all, will love all creatures. And if your God and your belief in God is a source of hate towards other people, you've got the wrong God. Mm-hmm. That is not the God of the Jewish people. And so uh, my guess is that he hit rock bottom. And when he hit rock bottom, there was no bottom because, and I've seen this, people that have embraced Judaism and they jumped ahead very quickly. And um, I actually had a friend who became extremely religious. He was wearing a black hat and a black coat and he looked very much, you know, I don't necessarily mean that, I don't necessarily see that as extremely religious, but in most people's eyes, that they would call extreme religious. And then he dumped it all, just, just dropped it all. Mm. And I said, what happened? He said, you know what? I started looking so religious that I felt uncomfortable asking basic questions that I still didn't get answers to. And then I kept building and building, but there was all these basics that I really didn't have. And the whole thing collapsed on me. What you said about the basic questions, I didn't know it, but that's what I learned from you. Huh? That's probably why I don't have a black hat. Because I want to be able to ask questions, and I ask questions all the time. And that's why I didn't lose my way. Yeah. Because whenever I have a question, I just, what does that mean? Right. What does that mean? That's right. That's right. The question is the beginning of the quest. No question, no quest, no growth. So I do think that the basics are the most profound and the most essential and the most neglected in most people's Jewish education. And um, I know that I've met kids that have gone through day schools and they've memorized halachas, they've memorized verses, they've memorized mishnayot, and they forgot God Hmm. and what this all really, really means, what this is about. So the the basics, you know, I I ask many audiences that grew up in a religious home, what does the word baruch mean? And people say, blessed. I say, okay, what does blessed mean? And they say, baruch. And I say, okay, let's try that again. <laughs> what are you saying when you say Baruch Atah? It's a, it's a power word in our tradition. It comes up a lot. And it's amazing how many people don't know what the word actually means. And so, too, there are just basics that so many people... Wait, so what does it mean? I don't know. I, I thought you knew. <laughs> uh, it means you are the source of abundance. So if I'm holding an apple and I say Baruch Atah, I'm not saying thank you. I'm acknowledging, of course, there's, a, there's an expression and awareness of gratefulness here, but I didn't say thank you. I did say something very specific. Baruch Hashem. You, Hashem, are the source of blessing. You are the source of abundance. And this apple is more than just a piece of fruit. This apple is a manifestation of divine abundance. And so the more I'm aware of the abundance in my life and the source from whence that, from where that abundance comes, I become more conscious. You know, what is a Jew? The word Yehudi is connected to the word Lahodot. Lahodot means to admit, to, uh, to acknowledge, and it also means to thank. In essence, a Yehudi is a person who is mindful of and grateful to God. That's what a Jew is. A person that is acknowledging, mindful of, and grateful to God. Baruch Atah is the power word of Judaism. To acknowledge and to be grateful that Whatever I have in my life is a gift from the source of all blessing. So I have three questions left. We have like eight minutes, around eight minutes so left of to, our time. That's three divided well, into eight. You're going to decide how long you'll take to answer okay. them. And I would skip one, but this one is important to me because I have a teenage daughter who doesn't want to daven. 
and it really isn't interested in religion at all. And she has many siblings above her. And what she says to me is that davening makes no difference. Nothing I daven forever happens. So I don't have any desire to daven. Right. How would you answer her? Well, we don't have enough time for sure, but we would begin with, she doesn't know the purpose of davening. The purpose of davening is not to get an answer. You know, but most people think I pray to be answered. If I don't get answered, then clearly nobody's listening. Nobody cares. And so we would have to redefine for her what it means, lehit palel, because lehit palel in Hebrew has been translated as prayer. And most people understand prayer to be, I'm trying to get God to want what I want. I'm trying to get him to change his mind and want what I want. That is not Jewish. I don't, my goal is not to get God to want what I want. How do I know what I want is really what I should want. And looking down the line in 50 years from now, that was really the best thing for me. Well, how do I know what's really good for me or what's not good for me? So she would need to go back to the basics and someone explained to her, what actually are we trying to accomplish when we are mitzpahlel? But in a lot of educational contexts, that's not being clarified. The kids are being forced to pray and they're being marked whether they're praying or not. And they develop a trigger of distaste for the experience. So a lot of, by the way, my experience with people that have left the path is it's more psychological than philosophical. There's some wound going on here. There's some anger going on here. I believe that a lot of people don't believe in God is really not that they don't believe in God. They just don't like God. And, and I understand why they're challenged. You know, I, I, that, that would be a very important conversation. Why after the Holocaust should we still like God or more actually we're commanded to love God. So I think it goes back to my issue with what I'm seeing uh, in the Jewish world is we're not teaching the basics. And it'll catch up to us at some point. So I would say that is part of the issue, is um, that she's, she's always believed that praying to God is getting God to want what she wants. And if he doesn't seem to do that, then why should I do that? Why should Israel matter to Jews outside of Israel? Well, you're asking three questions in eight minutes, which are the biggest. Each, <laughs> no, take your time. I don't care. I'm pod, sitting here as long as you podcast want. podcast could be just that question. <laughs> we can do um, a series of podcasts if you want. Look, you know, you have to understand that there's a practical way of looking at the land of Israel, but there's also a, a metaphysical way of looking at the land of Israel. Being that I'm kind of more attracted to the metaphysical side of things, the land of Israel is the conduit of blessing to all of mankind. And when the Jewish people are here and we build a country that is um, that embodies the values and the vision of God for this people, this country, we become a conduit of blessing to the world. And we brought a lot of blessing to the world by being with them in the, in, in the exile. But the time has come for us to come home and build home. And uh, when we're outside of Israel, we're basically a lifestyle of religion. But our goal wasn't to be just a lifestyle of religion. Our goal was to be a nation with a government, with everything that nationhood includes and, and requires. We were meant to not be role models as individuals. We were meant to be a role model nation to mm-hmm. nations. And uh, that's, you know, that's why uh, very often uh, some, someone will say to me, look, at, I'm on college campus and I don't see any difference between Jewish people and not Jewish people. And I said, you know, I don't, I, I, you know, you shouldn't expect to see that on an individual level. I don't think you're going to see that difference. But on a national level, and when that individual Jew becomes an active member of that national identity, look at the history of the Jewish people and look at what this country has accomplished and look at the extraordinary values that we have in the way we even wage war. And, you know, we don't even, we, we, we call it the IDF, the Israeli Defense Force, because we only want to be in defense. We're not looking to go on the offense. That's our message. We just want peace, you know, and so we're not looking to conquer anybody. You know, we're just looking to be ourselves and reclaim the promise of of the, the promised land that was given to us. So on a metaphysical level, until we come to this land and build a nation under the reign of good almighty, that's the importance of the land of Israel. Okay, you ready for the last question? 
Okay, I'll take a deep breath. <laughs> take a deep breath because this, this is an interesting question. Imagine you had a giant billboard that millions of Jews would stop and read the message on the billboard for a few seconds. What message would you put on your billboard? It would be a message that people won't believe. The message is God loves you. And people would think that must be some Christian guy wrote that. <laughs> You'd have to put a picture of you on the billboard. Yeah, you know, I want you to know that uh, I wrote a book on the holidays, Jewish holidays. I wanted to call the book You Are Loved. My publisher took it to uh, the marketing uh, department and they said no. And I couldn't believe it. I thought it was a brilliant title. And I said, I don't stand it. A, a, a title of a book should kind of deliver a promise of what's in this book and what's in it for you. And everybody wants to be loved. So this is their answer. You're right. Everybody wants to feel loved. Everybody wants to be loved. But a title has to be credible. And nobody mm. believes they're loved. Wow. That's what they said. So they wanted to call the book Dating God. <laughs> I said, Dating God? What kind of crazy title is that? So you, it's your title. You, you wrote that in the first chapter that the holidays are like a date with God. I said, okay, it's okay for a sentence, but not for a title. So we agreed on inviting God in. But uh, I, I think people don't understand that um, we are one with God. We are one with each other through God. And, uh, but I think most people wouldn't understand that billboard. And so my other option would be that, you know, God is one and you are some of that one. But you know what? There's an organization, a nonprofit organization that promotes atheism, which of course is nonprofit because they don't have any profits. But um, but they they raise money to promote atheism, and they actually had billboards and advertisements on buses that said, "There's probably no God, so relax." I thought, wow, that's so telling. That's exactly the problem for a lot of people. God is stressing them out. I'll be punished. Somebody's watching me all the time. Someone's out to get me. And you know what? If that's their God, then it's better they not believe in God at all than to believe in a God that's out to get you and to hurt you and, 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 and is trying to control you and diminish you. That's the God that, you know, the, an atheist came to the Lubavitcher Rebbe and he said, I don't believe in God. And he said, the God you don't believe in, I don't believe in either. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, education that needs to happen. Thank you very much, Rabbi. Thank you. Thank you so much. All the best. Shalom, shalom. That was Rabbi David Aaron, the founder of Israelite and the Rosh Hashiva of Araita. I really enjoyed that conversation with Rabbi Aaron. I was trying for about two years to get the rabbi on the podcast. And when he said to me, I've got an open window on Monday night between 8.30 and 9.30, I grabbed it and we made the recording. It was well worth it. Thank you, my friends, for listening. I've got several more interviews scheduled in the future, including hopefully a series of interviews with one of my favorite guests on the podcast. Bezat Hashem, I'll announce it when we get there. In the meantime, make sure you listen to the previous episodes. And if you haven't listened to my other podcast, The Hasidic Story Project, that is really taking off with tens of thousands of listeners around the world. You can find it by searching for my name, Barack Holman, or look for Hasidic Stories wherever you listen to podcasts. And make sure to check out my books on Amazon. You can find them also by searching for my name. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to our next conversation together. Thank you.